Hello, my name is Erica Lorenz, and I am honored to be your host for another season of the Adoptee Voyages podcast. Adoptee Voyages serves and supports transracial adoptees with healing conversations that inform and encourage our listeners through the power of shared experience. This season, all episodes focus on adoptees who have decided to explore their first culture. Each Wednesday brings a new story and journey. So find a comfy seat and settle in as we hear this Adoptee's Voyage. Hello, Adoptee Voyages listeners. It's Erica. Welcome back to another episode for season two. Today's guest is Kate McCann. She is a adoptee from Seoul, Korea. She was adopted in the late 80s, and she was raised in Minnesota. So in her story and experience with her culture, it wasn't until later in adulthood that she started engaging and questioning her culture, Um, but she can share more of that information on today's episode. So Kate, would you like to say hello? Hi, thanks for having me. Yes, of course. Well, Kate, you and I had the opportunity to talk offline a bit before recording about your story. And you talked a little bit about something called an Esther house. I thought it would be really cool for listeners to just kind of know the context of what happened before you came to the States, because it's a difference in culture between how the States maybe handles pregnancies and how uh, Korea did. Yeah, so um, I can explain to my best of knowledge what an Esther house is. It may not be 100% correct, but this is what I understand what they're for. So an Esther house is kind of like a woman's shelter for single expecting mothers in Korea. Um, Culturally, I personally think Korea is a little behind when it comes to women and equal rights and things like that. Um, And when I was born in the late eighties, um, it was very shameful to be a single mother. Mm. Um, and the only way from what I understood, you could become a citizen of Korea is you had to go through the biological father to get your, like your registration number. Yeah. Um, and since my biological father was not involved, I believe I wasn't really even allowed to be a citizen because my mother couldn't Mm. even do that. So yeah, she found out she was pregnant. She checked herself into an Esther house and continued her pregnancy there. And I believe she gave birth there or in a hospital. Okay. Um, and then, yeah, she just kind of decided that it would be better to relinquish me for adoption. And from what I understand is these types of houses still exist in Korea. And someone described it to me as they were like a, a shelter where women would stay. And after they gave birth, they would stay for a few months and they would mm-hmm. provide like parenting classes. Yeah. Um, but I think also they would talk about the option of relinquishment as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure how much family preservation is, how strong it is over there for single mm-hmm. moms. I'm not, I'm really not sure. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you just sharing what knowledge you have regarding Esther houses And I think it was really important to bring that into the context of your story because it could be a very similar story or case for other adoptees who were adopted from Korea or other places around the world. But also it shows culturally how your story began as you were being formed in the womb. And I think that's important to also recognize for adoptees. 
So it sounds like for your story, you were uh, adopted from Korea after being in some foster homes for a few months, and then you were adopted to Minnesota. Just feeling like Minnesota and Korea probably have very different uh, cultural backgrounds and environments. So could you speak a little bit to that about what it was like being raised in Minnesota? Yeah, um, being raised in Minnesota, I guess as a kid, since when you're in the thick of it, you don't sometimes realize what's yeah. going on. You're just kind of living your life, trying to just get through each day. Um, as an adult, like looking back on it, like hindsight being 2020, it was definitely difficult being mm-hmm. raised in a very pretty rural town. It was about 12,000 people when I was growing up. Oh, wow. The demographics was 97% white. Mm-hmm. Um, my entire family was white. All my friends were white. All my teachers, all the adults in my life. I never, I never saw an Asian adult. Huh. Um, or even, yeah, or even other adults of color. Like pretty much almost 99% of the people in my life were white. Hmm. Was there ever a adult person of color that you looked up to or were like, I want to be that person when I grew up? Or was your mindset always like, oh, I want to be that person, but that person's white? Um, I didn't really want to be like any specific person growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, I, when it came to like adults of like Asian descent, like I knew who Jackie Chan was. Yeah. And I thought Jackie Chan was really cool. Um, but I, I was like, I'm not going to be a martial artist or a movie star, but, um, he was one of the first that I remember Hmm. and actually being like, Oh, that's, that's kind of cool. Like an Asian man, like in movies. Yeah. um, But then I started getting called Jackie Chan a lot. So then it was kind of, it was a, it was a little bittersweet. Yeah. Yeah. Dang. I'm sorry about that. You did say you didn't see any Asian adults. Does that mean you saw Asian children within your community? Yeah, so we, not we, my community ended up adopting quite a few Korean adoptees within like a 10 year span. Wow. And from what I understand, from what I found out, my, uh, I have an older white adoptive sister. She's biologically my adoptive parents. Um, My adoptive mom told her that the pastor had adopted a little Korean girl and then had asked someone from the agency to come speak and give like an informational speech about adoption in Korea and how Korea, you know, all these poor children in Korea needed families and mm. it was a good thing. So then about, I want to say at least 10 to 15 white women in our congregation adopted a bunch mm. of Koreans right in that, that um, 10 year span. So there were a bunch of us running around, but because of that, I assumed all um, Asian kids were adopted and weren't raised in Asian families. It never occurred to me that Asian kids are raised in Asian families in Asia. Yeah, I think there's so much of what you just said that I could respond to. I think the big things are the push, especially within churches for international adoption um, can influence a community Mm -hmm. to the point where A transracial adoptee doesn't understand or even think that other Asian families might have Asian children or Asian children could be raised with Asian families. And that just astounds me that, you know, that that was part of your story and people just accepted it like, yep, this is this is right. 
um, and never brought that up. I guess, mm -hmm. did you and your family ever talk about like your culture growing up or talk within your community of families who also adopted about like Korean culture? Uh, not too much from my own memory. I'm sure if you were to ask my adoptive mom, she would have a different perspective. Mm -hmm. um, but from my own personal memory, I mean, I did a Korean culture camp in the cities. I only remember it once. My adoptive mom says it was at least twice. And then I stopped going. And I don't remember why I stopped going, but she tells me it was because I didn't want to go anymore. Mm. And we had a couple like wall decorations from Korea. I had a, a hanbok, which is a traditional Korean dress when I was a, a baby. Yeah. Um, there were a couple of kids books about Korea. So, I mean, I had things around the house, but it wasn't like an active daily thing. It was more mm. just like, look at this artifact. Here's a book yeah. if you want to read about it. It wasn't ever like, let's sit down and discuss it and, yeah. and really like live it and keep it alive daily. Hmm. Yeah, I want to touch back on, on two things you said. The first one was in describing when you stopped going to this Korean camp. You said that your mom said that you wanted to quit. You and I kind of talked offline about how sometimes there's things we do as kids that we don't want to continue doing. And we say, I want to quit. Like our minds just change all the time. And yet you can speak to this. It sounds like when you said, I want to quit, like your family or your parents just said, okay, that's fine. I guess, how do you resonate with that? Looking back on it as an adult? Um, as an adult, it's, it's kind of like, I don't, buy it. I don't, mm. like I said, I don't remember having this conversation with her at all. Yeah. Um, but apparently according to her perspective, I was like, I just don't want to do anymore. You know, it's not interesting to me. And, and I'm sure at that age, it probably wasn't like, it probably was really awkward. And I do remember being surrounded by so many Korean kids and being really weirded out by it. Yeah. Um, and, mm. uh, I, I remember like, you know, I liked the classes. I liked the dancing and we got to pick between the fan dance or, um, Taekwondo. Like, I remember liking it, but yeah, I just, I don't buy the whole, oh, because I just wanted to quit. It was that easy for her to just let it go. Like for me, it's like, you made me play piano until I was like 18, Yeah, you know? Um, yeah. and I wasn't allowed, it wasn't even a choice. Like I never even thought to ask to quit piano. Like mm. that was, it was like brushing your teeth. It was, mm. it was just that ingrained in me. And a part of me is like, well, we could have done that with my Korean culture. Like that yeah. could have just been ingrained in me. Yeah. Um, I'm a teacher myself and I have a couple students who go to like immersion schools on the weekends. Like one yeah. of them, he does like his culture on Saturdays and he says he's going to do it until eighth grade. And I just asked him like, do you like doing it? And he's just like, nah, I mean, it's, it's my culture. You know, I got to learn yeah. it. And, you know, yeah. Learn he, he wasn't like super ecstatic about it, but you know, he was very reasonable, reasonable about it. And very mm -hmm. like, he knew it was important. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think knowing that your culture is important is a thing that lacked in how adoptee agencies or adoption agencies, or even just like the society specifically in America really looked at international or transracial adoption. And I just appreciate that you said, you know, your student understands it's a reasonable common sense that my culture, where I come from is important. Mm -hmm. And it just sounds like that was lacking either in that time, or maybe even to this day with some families, unfortunately. So yeah, thank you for touching base on that. 
Was there a point of curiosity for you outside of camp or outside of like the artifacts that your family had um, of wanting to search or dive deeper into your culture as a kid? Um, as a kid, not really. It just seems so foreign to me, the idea of being Korean. Like I knew I was Korean, but it was more like, that's just the outside. Like the outside of me is Korean, but the inside of me is white. You know, that's mm. kind of the way I felt. I got yep. called a banana a lot. I got yep. called a Twinkie a lot, mm. um, you know? And so for me, it was such a abstract concept as a kid yeah. growing yeah. up that it just, I didn't even, if I even wanted to, I wouldn't even know where to start. Mm. Yeah. I guess for you, was there a turning point or when did that turning point happen? Yeah. So in um, 2020, um, when COVID happened, we were all locked down. The, you know, the things that happened with George Floyd, all of a sudden yeah. these racial talks became extremely important, yeah. um, not just for BIPOC, but it was actually like breaking through the white bubble that so many yeah. white people live in, that they were actually having to have these conversations. Mm. Um, and for me, it was kind of in that year that I just realized that like, I'm Korean. <laughs> Yeah. You know, and that like, it, it's not just like an outside thing. It's an inside thing too. And um, yeah. And I, I, I know that I've talked to many other like fellow CADs, Korean adoptees and other TRAs. And a lot of them have said that 2020 was the year for them too. Cause it's a thing called coming out of the adoption fog, but it's yeah. also, I call it coming out of the racial fog as well. Hmm. Yeah. Why do you say it's coming out of the racial fog? Can you elaborate? Yeah. So for me, like I said, I always kind of just thought it was my outward appearance that like, sure, I like Asian, but you know, I'm Kate, you know, I'm, I'm Kate. Yeah. Like, I'm, yeah. I'm, you know me, like, I, I like eating spaghetti and I like, you know, I like all the movie stars you like, and I wear yeah. the same fashion. Like, I don't know anything about being Korean. So yeah, when this happened, I think I was 33 at the time. Um, and it started with simple things like, realizing that my skin issues, my hair mm. issues, my stomach issues, they were all related to the way I was treating my body. It was like, wait a minute, I'm treating my body like a, like a Western European white American. Like mm. I shouldn't be eating the foods I'm eating. I shouldn't be using the products on my skin and my hair that I should be. I realized I did some research on my hair and I realized that, you know, Asians have the thickest hair strands. Our hair mm. strands are seven times thicker Wow. Than like most ethnicities and we have a lot of natural oil. So I was washing my hair every night mm. and I realized that no, we are not supposed to wash our hair more than maybe twice a week, if not once a week. Yeah. So just things like that, realizing that this went deeper than just like your outward appearance. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it goes deeper than what a lot of adoptees think about when they think about connecting with their racial identity or their ethnic identity of like, okay, I will visit my country. I will maybe go to a camp or I'll start speaking the language, which all of those are good things, but even it's taking care of ourselves. And for 2020, I mean, I feel like a lot of people could agree that was a really, really difficult year and self-care became one of the highest priorities for everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, so the fact that you were able to be like, wait, the things that I'm doing are not working for me because I'm addressing my issues as a European and it's not working. So what, what does that mean? Like, who am I? 
how can I best take care of myself? I think that's really powerful. So 2020 happens, you're readdressing, you know, your identity, your racial identity. Did you start doing small things to like look more into your culture outside of the self-care that you mentioned? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. So I started um, learning Korean. I'm like toddler level. (laughs) Yeah. Like I could say really simple things. I understand the concept of the language, but they have so many different um, rules. Like they have things called honorifics. Mm. So depending on who you're talking to, you have to change the way you talk. So there's like three different ways of saying the same thing. So figuring all that out. And then I started eating more Korean food and I've actually started cooking Korean food. So like I make like, I make pretty traditional stuff like rice and then um, kimbap, which is kind of like sushi, but there's no raw fish in it. Hmm. Um, I just made my first batch of kimchi like a month ago. That's cool. So that was kind of neat. And then we also, my daughter and I, and my husband, we try to celebrate the bigger holidays. So like just, just happened in October, I believe, or maybe it was August. It was August this year. And then um, the Lunar New Year's coming up in February, which is like the biggest holiday. So we, we try to do that. And then I did actually sign my daughter up with the exact same Korean culture camp that I did That's as a kid. Cool. And I volunteered. So I was with her every day and, and you know, kind of reliving my own nostalgia with it. And yeah, so no, I've been working really decently hard at trying to reconnect. It's fun and exciting but it's also really bittersweet because you realize all of these things you'll never fully naturally mm-hmm. understand or do like you won't you don't have those memories right like yeah. a, a celebrating just like with your grandparents in Korea doing all those traditional things you know it's like yeah. and I've said this before I I'm I'm like I'm the beginning like my family tree I am the beginning mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and when it comes to like Korean culture I feel like I am like the first almost in a weird way, trying to learn it and then pass it on to my daughter who is biracial. Yeah. Um, But I want her to be more connected being Korean than I ever was because Mm -hmm. I feel it's important for her to understand her own, like being biracial. Yeah. No, I think that's huge, especially in the sense of what we want to pass down to the next generation. I think that's been a common conversation in these episodes of, people feeling like I want to make sure the culture that I missed out on that I won't have memories of is passed down because it's really important to know where you come from, ancestors, heritage, all of it. So I think that's really cool. I love that you were able to volunteer at the camp. It's like full circle. Do you feel like there have been conversations with either your family unit or lifelong friends regarding like this shift in addressing your culture? Yeah, it depends on the person. Like my husband is definitely like my biggest support. Yep. Poor guy. We got married in 2020 in July. Me and too. Then, there you go. Yeah. Um, I got pushed out of the fog. I want to say September. Okay. So he married one version of me. And Mm. then within like a few months, I became a totally different version of myself. Um, But he's been great. Like he's been transitioning with me through it. And he's, he's actually been learning some Korean. I I make him speak Korean when we go to restaurants. Um, And, and the people love him because he's this tall, blonde haired, blue eyed guy. And he's coming in, you know, and saying, I'm going to say, oh, and, you know, ordering in (laughs) Korean, they get a kick out of him. Um, So like my husband's really good. 
my white adoptive sister, she's really good. Um, we're really close in age. We're only 11 months apart. Okay. So she's been really extremely like supportive, Mm -hmm. um, and helpful with just, you know, listening to me and and letting me kind of talk. And if I gripe about our parents or my brothers, you know, she, you know, she backs me on it and, yeah. Um, but the rest of my family, not so much. I don't talk to my dad or my brothers anymore. Mm. And then my mom, she wants to listen. And I think she wants to be a part of my journey, but she is a retired teacher. Mm. So she wants to fix everything. So mm. instead of just letting me talk, um, she's always like, well, what can we do to fix it? You know, what have you done this? Have you been going to therapy? Have you hugged a tree? Have you brushed it off? You know, and <laughs> it's, it's a lot and it it stresses me out. And it's kind of like, I don't need you to fix it. I just would like you to listen, you know, just, you know, listen. And, but that's hard for her because she is a fixer and a doer. Um, so it's, it's difficult because I know she wants to be a part of it, but because of her, her, the way she responds, it's, it's almost too stressful for me to share with her. Yeah. Yeah. And I think granted every person adopted or not, their personality, their background, their experiences are unique. And so I appreciate you just sharing, you know, the different people in your life who are engaging or not engaging or trying to engage with you as you continue your journey with understanding where you're from. And I think that's huge, like having community and support systems and people who are willing to say, yeah, I want to learn with you, not I want to fix you, Mm -hmm. um, is huge because it's something where there's no map. There's no, you know, turn right, look left, (laughs) take three steps, like do whatever. Um, and it's this like blind journey that you're going on. And like you said, you're like, I'm the first of my family. Like I am the first generation and what I do will be handed down. So yeah, I think that's huge. I guess for any of the listeners uh, who might be like, I'm also an adult. I'm, you know, this isn't my exploratory mid twenties, early twenties timeframe. Like I've been an established human here in the world for a few decades, I guess. What kind of encouragement would you have to those listeners? Um, I think just, you know, do what's beneficial for you. That's kind of a big thing I've been learning is, mm-hmm. you know, it's not about getting to point A to point B as fast as you can. It's yeah. not about, um, you know, feeling, I think a lot of us struggle with like, you don't feel, you know, your birth country, you don't feel that culture enough. Like sometimes mm-hmm. I feel like I'm just a fake Korean and, you know, and, and you feel guilty about it. Um, I think the best option, I think the best advice I can give you is just, you know, do what is beneficial for you and what feels good to you. Um, and obviously we're going to feel all those other feelings along with it. But, um, my other piece of advice is like, do that self-care as you're going on this journey, because it's going to be emotional. It's going to be ups and downs. And, you know, you're going to feel like one day you have no idea who you are. And the next day you're going to feel pretty good about it. And then like 20 minutes later, you're crying for no reason. (laughs) And I just feel like having the support, even if it's just one person doing your self-care, like knowing, okay, I know like when I start tunnel vision, you know, what can I do to kind of not go down the rabbit hole? 
And then, yeah, just, yeah, doing what, you know, is going to help you in the end. Because in the end, it's your journey. It's no one else's, not even another adoptee. Yeah. Well, everything you said, I'm just nodding my head saying, yes, yes, yes. So good. Such good truth. Such good advice. So Kate, really appreciate that. And you're right. We're all different. But, um, you know, if people do decide to take the step and try to learn about their culture, like have a support system, do self-care, know that your story is unique and individual and just take it day by day. So I appreciate Mm -hmm. you just reiterating that. I think listeners will be appreciative because that's the truth. (laughs) But anyways, I really appreciate all that you had to say. I know the listeners will too. I want to just thank you again for being on the podcast for sharing a part of your story and giving us a little insight on what your journey has looked like embracing your first culture. Yeah. Well, I I appreciate the opportunity. I think it's really important that as adoptees get our voices out there, especially for unfortunately the younger kids that are getting adopted, you know, hopefully that can change their trajectory a little bit. If, you know, adoptive parents can hear us and really take in what we're saying. Oh, I agree. I agree. Well, thank you again. It was a joy having you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode on the Adoptee Voyages podcast. To continue supporting this resource for transracial adoptees, please consider making a financial donation at adopteevoyages.org. Stay connected by following Adoptee Voyages on Instagram and Facebook. And finally, join me next week for another Adoptee Voyages episode.